If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8 tonight, verses 6. Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 13. It'll actually be our uh, third reading of the passage, our second time to walk through these particular verses. We're doing that because, as we've said the last couple of weeks, this chapter tells us about Christ's ministry, how it's better, and how the covenant, the new covenant, is better. And how the promises are better. And we've taken each of those three in turn. And so uh, tonight I want to focus on two big issues. Mainly the last one, how the promises uh, are better. The better promises, but also, again, uh, how Christ is better. So let me invite you to hear Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 6. But as it is... Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and here he quotes Jeremiah 31, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father in heaven, grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak your truth to us and keep us from error. May your truth be a rich blessing to us in Jesus' name. Amen. The first issue, Christ is better. That's very provocative in our day. Now, he says it in multiple ways. Uh, We looked two weeks ago at how Jesus has a better ministry than the ministry of the Old Testament priesthood. That was verses 1 to 5. Why was it better? Well, number one, he sat down. No Old Testament priest or high priest ever sat down because their work was never done. But Jesus, having finished the work he was called to do, he sat down. Down, He offered not repeated sacrifices endlessly again and again like they did. He offered once for all a single offering that makes us perfect forever. 
We also saw Jesus is better because he serves in the true tent. The Old Testament priest served in a man-made building. Jesus serves in the heavenly holy of holies, now to represent us before God, where we truly need him. And we saw he's better because he's the substance of which the Old Testament tabernacle, priesthood, and sacrifices, that whole complex, is but a shadow and a copy. He's the true reality. Then we saw last week, not only is his ministry better but the new covenant he brought about the mediator of which he is the he's the mediator of a new covenant it's a better covenant and we saw that it's better and so here it was speaking of an of an old covenant and new covenant it's it's speaking of the covenant under moses the mosaic covenant where moses was mediator and the new covenant where christ is mediator the mosaic covenant was never intended to be final It was always intended to point you beyond itself to Jesus and the prophets themselves in the midst of it told you, look, we need a new covenant and a new one's coming. Why do we need that? Because the old one doesn't do all that we need it to do. And it was never intended to do that. And also because of the sin of the people, uh, we needed something more. And uh, the Old Testament, uh, the Old Covenant did, however... It did expand things, but not as much as the new. The Old Covenant basically moved uh, the world of God's people from a religion uh, of households under the patriarchs to a nation. From the patriarchs to the people of Israel. But under the new, it's even more inclusive. It's all the nations. And it's, as we have seen in the last 2,000 years, it has gone uh, and swept through the nations. And we saw the last verse of this passage, how there's an overlap. There's an overlap of Moses and the the tent, the temple, now the priesthood and the sacrifices with the coming of Jesus. Just for a time, the old was growing old, like an old person was ready to pass away because the true reality had come in Jesus. And we saw that with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans... The temple was destroyed, the sacrifices were ended, the priesthood was finished, but our true high priest always lives forever to intercede for us. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. Two mistakes we can make when we hear that, and that's the review of the last two weeks, by the way. One is to misunderstand salvation, and one is to think that this is just utterly arrogant. First, don't misunderstand. The contrast is not between the way of salvation in the Old Testament with the way of salvation in the New Testament. It's not that anybody was ever saved because a flawed human named a priest offered animals in their place. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats... To take away sins. No one was ever saved that way on account of the animal offered by a flawed priest. The contrast rather is between the administration of the one way of salvation under Moses and the ceremonial law versus the administration of the one way of salvation under a new mediator, Christ, who has come. 
Under Moses, salvation was offered by promises and pictures and shadows and copies of the reality. The reality has always been Jesus. The plan of God has always been the Son of God upon the cross. Think of the cross lifted up on a high mountain in the middle of history. We look back upon a cross, his cross, and in the full light of God's revelation, we see Jesus shining upon that cross, and his cross work works forward to cover our sins when we didn't even exist when he died. Where does the shadow fall with the light shining upon? It falls on the other side of that mountain. And the shadow of the cross is what people before Jesus had. His cross work works backward to cover the sins committed before he came. We're going to see that later in this book. We look back upon Christ. They look forward to Christ. All are only and ever saved in Christ. We see more clearly than they did. Our assurance is greater than theirs because of that. He's come. Our invitation to come boldly before the throne of grace, to come right into the Holy of Holies through our high priest is an an open invitation to all that far exceeds the confidence that they had. We have more realization of the power of the cross. We have a greater realization of the outpouring of the Spirit in greater degrees on all nations. There's a a greater power. There's a wider extravagance. There's a brighter clarity. We see so much more than they ever saw. But we see the same thing. Ultimately, our hope is in the same person, Jesus And the author, the point of the author is, if you turn away from Jesus, you have nowhere else to turn. Don't go back to the old way. The new way has come. And so, very provocatively, he's saying, every point of Christianity is better than Judaism. It's better. It's better. It's better. Now that seems arrogant. I understand to our modern ears. Some people simultaneously want to say, look, all religions are equal, and at the same time, that none is necessary or true. Believe what you want to believe or believe in nothing, it doesn't matter. Just don't say you believe in something that's true, something that's real, something that's better than anything else. Secular people think it's humble to speak that way and that the Christian position is arrogant. But the reverse is actually true. How? Well, the Christian position would be arrogant if it was built on the opinion of men. But this isn't our idea. It's not my idea. It's God's idea. The church didn't make this stuff up. God revealed it. He says Christ is better. And so it is humble to submit ourselves to his judgment about these things. If God says Jesus is better, then it is ultimately humble to agree with him. The modern secular view is arrogant 
because it isn't actually listening to the religions it claims are all equal. You won't find a believing Muslim agreeing that the way of the Jews and the way of the Christians is just as true and just as good and just as eternally helpful as Islam. To say all are equally valid is to close our ears to what each is actually saying. And to reject Jesus is to say God is wrong about these things. And that's arrogant. So we speak here tonight in terms of a better ministry and a better covenant and better promises because God speaks that way. Are you listening to him? Now, what are the better promises? He highlights four better promises as he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31. They are found in the quotation in your passage from about the middle of verse 10 to the end of verse 12. The first promise you see is that God will write his law upon our hearts, middle of verse 10. The second promise that he will be their God and they will be his people, end of verse 10. The third promise in verse 11 is that all would know him from the greatest to the least, the least to the greatest. And the fourth promise that God would forgive their sins, found in verse 12. So let's walk through those promises. The first promise, God will put his law in their hearts. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, he says. What's he talking about? He's talking about inner, internal transformation. Look, the emphasis of the Mosaic Covenant given to the people under Moses was what? That the law was written on tablets of stone by the very finger of God. And what did the law do? Showed you your sin. There's a scene in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, not the Disney movie version, but in the book version where Quasimodo is with this beautiful woman He's captured her, and and, uh, she's crying, and he says to her, why are you crying? And she says to him, well, you're crying, and he says, well, yes, I'm crying. And she says, well, why are you crying? And he says, because I never knew how ugly I was until I saw how beautiful you are. And that is the way the law works, too. You never knew how ugly you were, spiritually and morally speaking, until you saw how beautiful God was in all his glorious splendor and honor and holiness and perfection. And the law shows you the beauty and glory and honor and holiness of him, and so it humbles you. You never knew what a mess you were before until you really looked at the law. Not just... To hear that you shall not commit adultery, but to hear Jesus say, if anyone looks at a woman in their heart with lust, has committed adultery. If anybody not just commits murder, but as Jesus says, as the law always intended, as Jesus makes clear, if you're unjustly angry with somebody, murdered them in your heart. We're all adulterers. We're all murderers. We're all liars. We're all coveters. We're all idolaters. We're, we never knew how ugly we were until the law... It's it's not that we didn't know these things, but the law makes these things so clear and so explicit. We never had a fuller revelation of the the, the minutiae, the details. I I recently saw a meme, one of these 
pictures with a caption that flit all over the internet. A young boy, maybe eight, ten years old, something like that. He's, he's lying face down on the, the tile kitchen floor. He's uh, propped up on his elbows, and next to him are a bowl of pretzels and an ice cream sundae. In front of his face, on the living room carpet, he's reading an electronic tablet. And the caption, presumably from the parent, is, quote, Food isn't allowed in the living room. His tablet isn't allowed in the kitchen. He beat the system. I quit. I thought that was funny. We're always figuring out. We are, we are always figuring out how to get around the rules. How to step over the line. How to how to do whatever it is we want to do, whether God says we can do it or not. And the law, what does it do? It tells you what to do. It exposes then your failures to do it, but the law itself doesn't give you the power to do what it commands. And the promise of the new covenant is that we are internally changed. The law is written on our minds and on our hearts. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. When the people of God could not rise to the heights of his standards... The Lord did not lower his standards to match their abilities. He determined to transform his people. He didn't look at his people and say, you're having a rough time obeying the Ten Commandments. I'm just going to chop five of them out and only make five. He didn't lower his standard. But he writes the law in the heart. So this passage reminds us that in a gracious relationship with God... The law is still important. Not because the law gives you life, but it is the path of those who have life. Not because obedience saves you, but because if you are saved, you are saved for obedience. Saved unto obedience. And I want to ask you, have you begun to find joy in walking in God's ways? Have you begun to find joy in the path of obedience? Do you find it uncomfortable to walk against Him? Do you grieve your transgressions when you step over the line or when you don't measure up? These are signs of life in Christ because no one's perfect. Some of our, and just to throw out a, a theological category, but some who describe themselves as dispensationalists have wanted to, some, not all, have wanted to say that in the Old Testament, particularly during the time of Moses, salvation is not by grace, but through obedience to the law. And by contrast, they want to say that in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, salvation is by grace, and there's no place for the law in the Christian life. But what they fail to see is the gracious dealings of God with Moses and the Israelites, even when he gave them the law. 
They see the giving of the commands, but they miss the context of the gracious relationship and the provision for forgiveness for failure. You remember when God gave the law at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. There was thunder, there was lightning. He spoke, the Ten Commandments were heard, and the people did what? They stepped back. Because what they heard was guilty as charged. And they said, Moses, you go on up to the mountain and talk with God for us. You be our, we're not good. We're not right. We're not holy. You be our mediator. And Moses went up the mountain. God chose him, of course, to be the mediator. And what did God do? He told Moses in the same chapter, Exodus chapter 20, I want you to build an altar. What's an altar for? It's for sacrifice. What's a sacrifice for? For a substitutionary death. For the forgiveness of sins. For our atonement. And when the covenant was ratified then in Exodus chapter 24, just four chapters later, do you remember what Moses did? He sprinkled the people with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. But with the shedding of blood, there is. A substitute has died. Now, does that mean that you and I on this side of the cross are the only ones who get the writing of the law in the heart and nobody before the time of Jesus ever got the writing of the law in the heart? Well, no! But you get the writing of the law in the heart not on the basis of the Mosaic external covenant which was written by the finger of God on the tablets of stone, but you get it on the basis of His grace in prospect of the mediator Christ who's coming to bring in the new covenant by which any and all are ever saved. Which was God's plan and purpose all along. So that David, the psalmist, could say, Oh, how I love your law, O God. Why does he love the law? It's not just out there. It's in here. It's written on the heart. This has been true for all God's people. God, by his grace, teaches us He changes us and he teaches us to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. To love righteousness and to hate wickedness. Has that work of transformation been completed in this life? No way! We are not yet made perfect. Imperfection remains. But it has genuinely been begun. And it begins in this life. We have a genuinely new heart. And it is completed instantly at your home going and you will see Jesus and you will be made like him for you will see him as he is. And until that day, we live in a state of war with an internal war. The flesh warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And we have these mingled desires to do what is right and these mingled desires to do what is wrong. And we, we are inwardly transformed and we need to be finally and fully and completely transformed. And Paul will go on to say uh, that as we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, we are being changed from one degree of glory to another. And he'll command in Romans 12 to, for us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Inward transformation is part of the promise of the new covenant. Any at all ever get it on account of Jesus. The second is adoption, verse, the end of verse 10. Notice the second promise. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
He makes us his. We begin to belong to him. And he says, I belong to you. Now, this is the heart of the covenant relationship. This is the heart. This is the great promise at the center of all God's promises. This is what we were made for. This is what Adam and Eve were created for, that they would belong to the Lord and he would be theirs. And it is, of course, what they rejected. But it is what God promised in the promise of a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and thereby rescue them from the kingdom of Satan and deliver them into the kingdom of God's own beloved son. Which is the promise that we have in Jesus. He brings us home to himself. Now this is a promise that was reiterated in Genesis 17 to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Genesis 17 verse 7. Throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To what? To be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is the same covenant principle and the heartbeat of the promise that was given to the enslaved Israelites in Exodus chapter 6 before the redemption that brought them out, before the plagues were given, before they ever got to Mount Sinai and were given the law, when God told Moses to go to the people and say in Exodus chapter 6, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. This is the promise repeated in the prophet Isaiah. It's repeated in Jeremiah. It's repeated in Zechariah. Jesus and the apostles repeat this. It's consummated in Revelation 21. The whole book ends with the vision of the new heavens and the new earth and the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband, where it is said, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Belonging, adoption. And that is a reminder that the new covenant is not completely and utterly new. It's not some hard division. It is the renewal of the prior promises, guaranteeing their fulfillment on a wider scope with deeper clarity, a deeper power, greater clarity, through the accomplishment of the mediator who makes it happen, Christ himself. And so we will have belonging, we'll have adoption. Third promise, universal personal knowledge of God. Verse 11, notice the promise of personal knowledge. They will all know me. That is true of every believer. This is what it means to be saved. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. That you may, uh, that they, he's speaking to God, about God's people. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, another way to describe it, is knowing God. Everyone who has eternal life has this knowledge. Granted that now we see as through a glass darkly. 
one day face to face. Not many religions talk about knowing God this way. A God who's way up there somewhere they'll talk about. There are all kinds of ways you can go about kind of grasping at him. But they don't talk about knowing him in this kind of personal and intimate way. You, you don't hear people talking about meeting the founder of their religion. You don't hear a Buddhist talking about meeting Buddha or a Confucianist meeting Confucius. You, but Christianity says you can know Jesus, who's the founder of your religion, and he's your God. J.I. Packer, in his outstanding book, Knowing God, which I commend to you, he speaks of the consolation of that. When he says one day he was walking in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic advancement, how by clashing with the church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, the man said at length, for I have known God, and they haven't. And he's right. Knowing God beats Everything else. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of Moses. When he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Moses could have lived as a god in Pharaoh's household. Every delight known to man at his beck and call. But knowing Christ, identifying with Christ, suffering for Christ was worth more than all the pleasures or wealth of Egypt. This is what Moses concluded. Jesus matters more. The mediator of the old covenant knows that Christ, the mediator of the new, is the important figure. Does your heart sing that same song? Have you begun to know God and do you know that you are known by him? Each will know God personally and no longer will you say, know the Lord. And and he's not saying it's not that. He's not saying you don't need pastors or teachers in the church. You don't need Bible study leaders. You don't, children don't need their parents to read the Bible with them and talk about the meaning of the gospel. He's not saying that when it says you'll no longer teach one another. But he is saying that the Holy Spirit gives us true and genuine knowledge of God and every child of God has that. PBS, Public Broadcasting, ran an expose on the Church of Scientology and as within other systems of religion, the key to progress in the Church of Scientology is making your way into different levels of knowledge. It costs you a lot of money. You start at the street level. You can walk into a Church of Scientology building and pay 50 bucks, and that's stage one. You get a little information about who you are. Stage two, the next step, may cost you 150 bucks. Then stage three may cost you upwards of $3,000. And if you graduate to the level where you have the privilege of the Church of Scientology explaining to you their theory for the origin of the universe, it may cost you as much as $10,000 for the initiation into that knowledge. One young couple uh, confessed to the fact that over a period of four or five years, they had spent over $100,000 to gain the necessary knowledge to triumph within the Church of Scientology. 
That's the same idea in the Masonic ritual. Stage one, everybody gets in. Stage two, you shake some hands, you get a little information, you pay a little more money, and there are 23 stages or something like that of increasing knowledge to the point where you have what's necessary. Or it's the same thing with Mormonism. You progress through certain stages of knowledge until you finally reach the priestly function that knows you, that allows you to really know the, the, the whole truth. And what is it in Christianity? This is for the boy or the girl, the man on the street, who's, and the whole deal, from cover to cover, with no price of admission, come and drink water freely from Jesus. And it is here for the youngest, and it is here for the oldest. And it's all in this book, which you can read and understand. There's no hidden passages. There's no secret rooms. There's no special place where we all need to kind of duck in and go a little further. It's all found in Jesus. Every spiritual blessing is in Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, he's withheld nothing from you. From the least to the greatest. From the youngest to the oldest. From the dumbest to the brightest. They will all know me, he says. And you can grow in maturity. Of course, you can grow in your understanding. But it isn't like the cults here. It's all for you in Jesus. So there's personal transformation. There's adoption. There's personal knowledge of God himself. And there's finally the fourth promise, forgiveness, verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Why is Jesus on the cross? Not because he ever did anything wrong, but because we did what was wrong and he is there as a substitute in our place so that God can remain both holy and just and judge and punish sin while being the one who declares just or declares right, even the ungodly sinner because of Christ on our behalf. And if you are saying, I don't need forgiveness for my sins, then then I would just ask you, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might? And have you loved your neighbor as yourself every moment of every day? And if that doesn't describe you, you need to be forgiven. And you need to be saved. And Jesus offers himself to be your savior. Buddhists don't know that kind of release. Deliverance comes only from self-effort, abolishing the desires of this life. And that's why Buddhists' dying words were, strive without ceasing. There's no forgiveness. There's no forgiveness in Hinduism. All you have is karma. Everybody eats the fruit of their own wrongdoing and you live in an endless cycle of reincarnation from which there is no escape and no possibility of the forgiveness of sins, but just working it out, trying to get better so you can come back as something better. Same in Islam. The Quran is no message of forgiveness for the wicked, no message for sinners who, do not, who deserve nothing from God but his judgment. You have no substitute offered in your place. What's the symbol of Islam? Scales being weighed in the balance, hoping 
that the good outweighs the bad, hoping that you can get to heaven if your good outweighs your bad. But what do we have in Christ? What is our hope? It is a cross. And a cross that's empty, there's no one on it. Why? Because Jesus finished the work, and so he left. And what did he do? He sat down. And why did he sit down? Because nothing needs to be added to what he did for you to be reconciled to God. Just look to God through him. Notice, finally, in the last couple of places, notice that this new covenant with its promises clearly distinguishes what Jesus does in us from what Jesus does for us and the benefit we get. He writes his law in our heart and he pardons all our iniquity. You can't have one without the other. You can't have the work of Christ for you and uh, without having the work of Christ in you. But they are different blessings, both of which are found in Christ. This was the great error of the medieval Catholic Church that persists today. And it is an error in which we are all tempted to stumble into. To fail to see the difference between forgiveness and transformation. Or between justification and sanctification. And so then, if we fail to see that, we rob ourselves or we rob others of the assurance God wants his people to have that we really are forgiven and we're really accepted by the Lord based solely on the accomplished, finished work of Christ upon the cross. Listen, it's not that you're right with God only so much as you have been made right internally. You don't have forgiveness because you are changed You don't get more forgiveness the more changed you are or less forgiveness the less changed you are. But if you are forgiven, you are also changed. You have both. Pardon for all your sin and the law written on the heart with the enablement to begin to walk in his ways. Since then he remembers our sins no more. Let us let go of the sins of others. What harm we bring to our relationship with others when we take their offenses against us and we put them in a bag and we carry them around and years, even decades later, we open up that bag and we pull those out and we throw them in their face and we say, I remember what you said or I remember what you did. I remember how you failed me and I will never let you forget that. Praise God, Jesus doesn't treat you that way. But as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Therefore, I say to us, if you don't know Christ, fall on your knees and ask for forgiveness. And if you do know him, go and tell somebody how they can know him too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and generosity, for your open-handedness, for the death of your Son, for the blessings we have in Him. Grant us to trust in Him, to look to Him, to rely upon Him, and so to come to you through Him.
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing and praise the Lord.